Well, here in the safety of the United States, we often forget that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ don't enjoy the same kind of security that we do. Suffering and persecution are relative, of course, and much of the suffering that that we endure often is loss of friendships or maybe losing a job or having our kids forced to do yoga in school. And so I'm not making light of this, and I encourage Christians to stand up for, for the truth and stand up for what's right and what's right as human beings. But no one would compare what we endure here in the United States to what many of our brothers and sisters face daily. In Iraq, the numbers of Christians was once one and a half million, and now it's down less than 300,000. The Syrian Christian population has also decreased in huge numbers. By 2013, 25% of the Christians in Syria had fled due to persecution. It's estimated that more than half of those who are left will leave too. In India, Hindu radicals have threatened to kill the church, uh, uh, kill church members and burn pastors if they continue to worship. Large mobs have burst into churches, attacking pastors in the middle of his preaching. In Sudan, the government, which has implemented Sharia law, demolishes churches and kills Christians without any hope of legal intervention. Not long ago, a woman was sentenced to death due to apostasy because she married an American Christian. She was pregnant, delivered her baby in prison. In Nigeria, the terrorist group Boko Haram wants to rid Christian, uh, the country of Christians, so they slaughter believers, kidnap young girls, and bomb churches. In China, lawyers have been imprisoned after they defended churches who had their crosses taken off of their building. And some churches in, in China, uh, the number is 1,500, uh, some have even had their buildings destroyed by the government. And in some countries, Iran and North Korea being the most notorious, evangelism, publishing the Bible, gathering for worship services is a death sentence. This is why we need to have a bigger worldview than American Christianity. If we lived our entire lives here or in countries where freedom to worship is a normal and an acceptable thing, we wouldn't have a need to contemplate what other Christians across the world suffer. We don't see it, so we don't think about it. The suffering that these Christians go through every single day is similar to the suffering that we see all throughout Scripture. You see it in the New Testament. Believers being persecuted. You see this in the early church. Believers being persecuted. You see this throughout church history. Believers being persecuted. Following Christ often leads to persecution and suffering and pain. And as we've read through the book of Obadiah, we see this happening in the Old Testament as well. Those people who were called by God for His purposes suffer. And Israel, in Obadiah, likely asked this, where is God in all of this? Where is God in the middle of my suffering? If you've suffered for your faith, you've likely asked this question. You do the right thing, you obey, you read scripture, you you do all of those things that you, you do it to your best of your ability. We fail, but we do it to the best of our ability, and yet... Suffering is still part of our life. Why? Where is God? 
Because we think that if we obey, then we should get something in return. We obey God and we suffer, so therefore something must be going wrong here. Where's the justice in that? Where is the justice in doing right and still suffering because of it? The Israelites would have asked these questions, certainly. We're we're God's chosen people. We've messed up, sure, but God still promised that he would keep us secure. Now Edom is terrorizing us. Where is God in this? Where is the justice? The believers today who are suffering and being persecuted for their faith are asking the same question. Where is the justice? They're clinging to life with every ounce of strength they can muster. They just want justice. They want the bad guy punished. They want to be free to proclaim the truth of God without persecution. Where is the justice? And we know, because we have the entire Bible, justice did come to Israel. Justice did come. And this morning we're going to see the end of Obadiah, verses 15 through 21. We're going to see how this justice came, but also, more importantly, how that promise is also for us. And so the first thing we see in this passage in verses 15 and 16 is a a day of judgment on all nations. Edom's terror added to the sorrow felt by Israel. So they pleaded with God uh, to intervene on their behalf. The promise of the day of the Lord was near. And it was intended to give them comfort. If you're in the middle of a tragedy and God speaks to you, however that may be, here it was God speaking through the prophet, and God says, behold, my day is coming. You're in the middle of your suffering, you're struggling, I'm coming, my day is coming. Victory is at hand. This was given to them as a sign of encouragement. Obadiah also writes that all nations will be affected by the day of the Lord. Striking similarity to what we see in Joel chapter 3, particularly to the references to all nations and the ultimate outcomes of what happens. In both passages, we see the destruction of God's enemies and the exaltation of God's people. This is common in Old Testament prophecy. People are struggling. God says, one day I will defeat them and I will raise you up. There's n- it's not an accident that this is often what's said to the church. And this is what should be preached to the church. This is the gospel message. One day, sin will be defeated and we will be raised up. Not because of us, but because of what Christ has done. The gospel is present in every part of the Old Testament. And we see it here in Obadiah. The other thing to remember here is from these two verses is that the punishment that Edom gets will fit the crime. For three weeks we've seen Edom's terror. Uh, We've seen that they have bullied Israel, that they have attacked Israel, that they have constantly threatened Israel. They are in a state of panic because of what Edom is doing to them. Edom's bullying was near its end. Now remember, This sounds like an extreme punishment. We're going to destroy all of these people. The nation will be destroyed because of their bullying. And we we say, that that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like it's just. Until you remember that God would be perfectly just 
to wipe every single human out. That God would be perfectly just to destroy His creation because of the rebellion that we have created against Him. That we've sinned against a perfect God and we deserve punishment for that. But even if uh, that's the case, Edom wasn't just guilty of the sin that we all carry. Edom was also guilty of terrorizing God's people. Side note, those who attack the church, those who attack the bride of Christ, are in dangerous territory. Those who attack the people of God in the Old Testament, those who attack the people of God today, are putting themselves in a dangerous position that God's justice will come down and it will come down heavy and hard. And this gives hope to the people that one day their tormentors will be gone. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. Remember the rage that you will face when you know your kid is being bullied in school. What do you think when your child comes home crying that they're being bullied every single day at school you want to go tear some people down don't you that's good parenting right it's not good parenting to do it it's okay to want to do it you want to defend your children with everything that you have these are god's children these are the people of god god is protecting them promising them that you're suffering now but one day i will come in and i will clean this up Again, the gospel. So the question comes, when will that day come? When would Israel see the victory and justice that God has promised them? We want it now, don't we? We want the suffering to go away. We want justice and victory now. But what happens when it doesn't come? I'm a very impatient person. And something, I want something, I want it now. I don't want to wait for it. And you have to think that the people in Israel, hundreds and hundreds of years, they felt the same way. We want this and we want it now. God, give it to us now. They had a history of not being satisfied with what God had given to them. If you think throughout Israel's history, what did God do for them? They were enslaved in Egypt. And God provided a way out. And though they wandered through the wilderness, they still had provision, but yet it wasn't good enough for them. This is the same food we eat every day. Bread again? This is what we have to eat? Hey, back in Egypt, at least we had good food. Let's go back to slavery because at least we were fed. They had this story of not being satisfied with what God had provided for them. They said this to Moses, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat down by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They had just been freed from slavery, now they're complaining that it would have been better to go back to Egypt. Not only is this a theme throughout the history of Israel, it's a theme that runs throughout human history, beginning all the way back at Adam and Eve. In the garden, they were given everything they needed. 
They had nothing lacking but that one tree. God says, don't touch it. Don't go near it. Don't eat of it. And it was the one thing they wanted. Adam and Eve began this course of human history that we deal with today. God says, I provide exactly what you need, and we say, that's not enough. God says, I've got enough for you to be satisfied, and we say, we aren't satisfied. I've given you all that you need for life and salvation. It's not enough. And so the Israelites must have been thinking, where is this? Where is the justice? Where, when will the promises be fulfilled? We want it on our time. But justice did come. In Obadiah's day, this happened when Babylon defeated Edom in 553 B.C. What Edom did to Israel was ultimately done to them. God's promises were fulfilled. And depending on when this was written, because we don't certainly know when Obadiah was written, it was either a few hundred years later or just a few decades later. Either way, most of the people who read this would have never seen the fulfillment. In Obadiah's day, God promised that the day of the Lord would come. For Edom, that would mean their defeat. What they did will be done to them. They will be judged by their works. They will drink the cup of God's wrath. And we'll pause just for another second. God's wrath is not a comfortable topic. We, we kind of shake and, and shudder when we think about the wrath of God, but it is a, an essential component to his story. It's an essential component to the gospel. And it's found all throughout Scripture. Revelation 14.10 says this, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jeremiah 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, talk about God's wrath, specifically the cup of God's wrath. It's uncomfortable, but it's an undeniable part of God's story. Something else to consider in understanding this passage is that the day of the Lord is also a day of salvation for his people. So we have the day of the Lord coming with a, a wrathful anger, perfectly wrathful anger, and then on the same hand, you have salvation. You have life. You have breath. In time, Israel would come back to the land and live in it. They were pushed out of Jerusalem. They were captured and it made slaves. But one day they will return. And they will live in the land. And if you remember, Edom was waiting to capture Israel as they ran out of the city. But the day of the Lord, there will be a reversal. Mount Zion, where Israel's refugees were cut down, would be a, the spot where they find deliverance. This was the place of God's dwelling, and it had been uh, desecrated by foreigners, and it would be holy once more. These words gave hope to the people of Israel. Obadiah emphasizes that Israel will possess the land of its enemies. 
suggesting that the whole world will be under dominion of the Lord on the future day. The message of the entire book of Obadiah is that Edom and everyone else who turns from the ways of the Lord will be judged. Through that judgment, Israel will be saved and God will be glorified through his mercy and through his justice. The promised land of the Old Testament is a shadow or a type of the new heavens and the new earth. This is important because Zion and Jerusalem often uh, represent the promised land. And so stick with me. There are a number of verses that point us in this direction. Isaiah 54, 1 through 3, shows us that Jerusalem will be uh, enlarged to possess the nations. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Sometimes the nations are depicted as streaming into Zion or Jerusalem. Isaiah 60 And then Revelation 21 and 22, you see the latter is the fulfillment of the former. This is why the new creation is often called uh, the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. God promises Abraham that he and his offspring would inherit the world, not the land. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham knew the true promised land was the city that's foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And a better country, a better heavenly one. And beginning in verse 8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, but by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Then in verse 13, these all had died in their faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. Psalm 37 says the same thing, and that those who are blessed by the Lord will inherit the land. This land is pointing to the entire earth. It's not just a geographic center, a city, a place. It says this will spread to the entire planet. You say, well, wait, that's Israel. Listen, Jesus is the true Israel. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. But not only that, Israel is also those who are united to Christ. 
Galatians 6.16 says, And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So the true fulfillment of this passage in Obadiah, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, the true fulfillment is found in the day of the Lord. So when God's people are saved and God's enemies are judged. Do we not see this as a promise for us? Over and over, Jesus says that he will come again. Sin will be defeated. Those who are without Christ will be defeated and destroyed. And those who are found in Christ will be given the inheritance. Israel is being promised that. God's saying, I will save you. And looking through a glass darkly, these people would have seen the day of the Messiah, the one who would come to make all things right. This is pointing us to the gospel. This is a source of great hope that one day things will be made right. We are waiting for the same thing that they are. We're waiting for the return of Christ to fix it all. Sin and shame and suffering gone. And we get to worship Jesus. We get to see our Savior. We get to see the one who would defeat Edom and who will defeat all the other nations that rage against him. And he will reign forever and ever. I began this morning with a question that was asked by the Israelites and often asked by us today when will there be justice? You could picture Christians today being locked away in prison for proclaiming the truth, beaten by their captors, saying this question, when will there be justice? This person would be abused, and justice seems to be light years away, but the idea of a future justice brings hope. You can hear the Christians in North Korea saying the same thing. They're imprisoned in their own country. They fear the firing squad every day. They do their best to evangelize, knowing that if someone turns them into the government, they will die. You can hear them singing praises and weeping over their losses, shouting, when will there be justice? You can hear the Christians in Iran saying the same thing. As a brutal Islamic regime restricts the Christian faith and evangelism is illegal, Christians are forced to meet in secret, praying and hoping that no one finds out about what they're doing. As they suffer, they groan, when will there be justice? You can hear pastors in the West saying the same thing. As pastors are jailed or they're uh, fined for speaking out about, uh, against the culture and, and for what the Bible says, they are persecuted. Their churches can be shut down. And they lose the ability to continue on in their ministry. And as they mourn this loss, you can hear them saying, when will there be justice? Whatever it is that we face, no matter how trivial it may seem to you, understand that justice will come. For some of the Israelites, the justice did not come in their lifetime. They died before they saw Edom fall. They died without ever having seen the wrongs made right, but they knew the promise would be fulfilled. And if you're asking the same question, 
You may be asking, when will there be justice? Justice for the persecuted and the oppressed. Know that justice will come. But not on your schedule. This may be the hardest pill to swallow, isn't it? We believe that justice will come. We believe that Jesus will make all things right. We believe that, but we want it now. We, we want suffering to go away. We, we want to, to feel full. We want to experience that, that, that thing that, that we're waiting for. We we've did a taste of salvation, but we're not yet perfected. We want it now. This is hope. If we could define the Christian life in a word, hope would be one of the options. Not blind hope, not hope in something that may or may not happen, but hope that's promised to come. Not hope in what a politician says. We, we hear that every four years, don't we? That there's hope for a better future. Why do people latch on to that? Because we want something better for us in the future, whatever it may be. Every one of us wants a better future future we want hope for the person who doesn't know Christ the person who's not a Christian hope is pretty much wishful thinking there's nothing backing it up other than a feeling maybe that things work out if we get lucky then we'll come out okay be nice to people if I live a good life maybe I'll I'll get lucky Hope is no better than luck. But for the Christian, our hope is not in random chance. It's not a product of wishful thinking. We have a hope that's not accidental or unguided. Our hope is that God will fulfill his promises that he's made in Scripture. It is a hope based on fulfilled promises. For our brothers and sisters who cry, when will there be justice? The hope is found in Christ that his promises will come to pass. It may not come when we want it, but we continue to trust that God knows what he's doing. We trust that his plan for us is exactly what we need, how we need it, and in the time that we do need it. And for some Christians, persecution, or this may be persecution and death, This may mean that we follow the the millions upon millions of martyrs who have given their lives for the sake of Christ. Do we understand that fully? Do we understand why that's needed? No, not not entirely. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? That to push forward the cause of Christ, many will need to give their lives. Did the people of the time of Christ, those who followed after him, understand fully why he had to die? Think about it. The promised Messiah arrives. He's in early 30s. He's preaching. People are following him. People who are blind are now able to see. People who are lame are now able to walk. People who are dead are now raised to life. And his ministry lasted three years. We think, for the next 30 or 40 years, he could have traveled around the world. 
He could have gone to every corner of the globe and he could have proclaimed the truth so that all people could hear the gospel. He could have done that. And you have to wonder in the position of his followers that they were watching him as his body was pulled off the cross. There is no breath happening. He's dead. And you watch as they wrap him in burial cloths and put him into the tomb and the door is shut. What now? You think maybe the followers would have thought we needed Jesus just a little longer. By human standards, three years is not enough to do what needed to be done. And this thinking would have had a strong case based on our standard standards, but it's terribly incomplete. Because you think what happens after Jesus died? The spread of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. Planting churches, the apostles went around uh, uh, Europe and into Asia proclaiming the truth, planting churches. What about the witnesses after Christ who gave up their security, their safety, and their lives for Jesus? See, God's ways are not our ways. Justice will come, but not by our standard. We are fallible creatures who make errors and judgment, but God does not. The timing of Jesus' death on the cross doesn't make much sense to mere mortals, but it was part of God's perfect timing. And so when we cry out for justice to come, remember this. Remember that God doesn't operate on our timetable. He doesn't do things at our whim or on our demand. His timing is perfect, even when we don't understand. Remember that justice will come. God will overcome the evil intent of the nations. God will make things right. God will defeat sin once and for all. This is a guaranteed future whether we are alive to witness it or not. And so for the unbeliever, someone who's not a Christian, justice will come. You will pay for your sin. You will stand before God and give an account for your life and you will not be able to say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. You will say, I tried my best. I did what I could. I'm, I'm a good person. And God in his judgment will say, depart. And the eternity that you will spend will be in hell separated from anything that is good or merciful. This is the promise of God's cup of wrath that will be poured out. But for those who are found in Christ, those who belong to the family of God, that punishment has already been given. The wrath of God has already been poured out. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you in your place so that you could be adopted into his family. You are now his child. Your sin was given to Jesus and his perfect righteousness was given to you. This exchange makes us sons and daughters of God. And this is what we mean when we talk about the gospel. It's the good news that the punishment that we deserve, that we earned, has already been taken care of. It's over now and we can celebrate the fact that the greatest injustice in human history has brought forgiveness and salvation to us. For the Christian, we may ask, when will justice come? The answer is justice has already come through the injustice of Jesus' death. 
For those who reject Christ, justice will one day come. But my brother and sister in Christ, let's celebrate the promises that God has made and how he has given us new life. We are his children and have all the rights and privileges that come from being part of God's family. I want to close with the entirety of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So rather than crying, when will there be justice, let's instead be united as the people of God and shout, come Lord Jesus, come quick.